where it's lovely. I've got a, a, a slight confession to make. I've got this sort of image of, of, in order to be taken seriously as a speaker at Emmaus Road, you, you sort of have to look a particular way. I have this sort of sense. And you have to wander up and down a little bit in brown boots, and you have to have a, you have to have a big beard, and you know, occasionally you go back to the lectern. And um, I did try and grow a beard, actually, this week, but my family was so unimpressed, and I looked so horrific, that I, I gave up on the idea. So I'm not looking like Mike and Pete and all the guys. I'm, I'm clean-shaven, and there's a good reason for that, which is that my family would have disowned me had I arrived uh, as I was looking. But on a serious note, we, uh, we've been looking the last five Sundays, we've been looking at discipleship, 10 tough talks. And we've looked each Sunday at a different um, aspect of what it is to be a disciple. We've looked at cost, the cost of being a disciple, receive, go, fast, forgive, obey. And last week, it was all about dying to self. And those of you who haven't been through the series with us, that's what we've been doing. And if you weren't there last week, I really, just a couple of plugs before we get into it, I really encourage you to get onto the website and look and listen to Pete Portal's talk because it was absolutely amazing. Pete runs, if you weren't here last week, he runs an amazing ministry in one of the toughest suburbs of Cape Town called Menenberg. And he lives amongst the drug addicts in that area of Cape Town. It's a rough gangland uh, neighborhood. And Pete was talking about what it is to actually die to self and to live with his wife amongst uh, the people that are really hurting in that part of Menenberg. Take up your cross and die to self. And it was really hard-hitting. It was very moving. And if you haven't listened to it, I really encourage you to get on to the website and download it. Pete Portal. Secondly, another little plug, but if you haven't read or haven't got Pete Gregg's new book, Dirty Glory, and I can say this, I can push it because he's not here, it is fantastic. It's just amazing. And um, I, I, I've got halfway through it, actually, on the train from uh, Guildford to Waterloo. And I disregarded Heather's public transport. And I found myself between Vauxhall and Waterloo, uh, absolutely it's sort of split between laughing. I was so, because I could picture Pete actually saying what he was, what I was reading in the book, and tears streaming down my face. And I was surrounded by commuters. No one could really figure out what was going on, and nor could I. But I really recommend it as a book. Um, my mum, who is 76, and is uh, struggling actually at the moment with cancer. She's reading it in her oncology ward in Ipswich Hospital and she's really loving it. So uh, that's a, a little plug for Pete's book. Today, we're looking at love, at love. And I wonder whether, like me, you enjoyed the Olympics. You enjoyed the Olympics and the Paralympics. I loved watching over the summer. I loved watching the Olympics and the Paralympics and particularly the Paralympics. Because I love the, the courage, the determination, the effort, the skill, uh, and often the stories that lay behind many of the Paralympians. And it was just incredible watching them. And amazing that Team GB came second to China with 147 medals. And there was one 
Paralympic, Paralympian whose story really grabbed me. I don't know if there are any South Africans in the house. I can see a couple of South Africans in the front. Um, but there's a guy called Ahmad Hassim, who is a very well-known South African Paralympic swimmer. He's a freestyle butterfly uh, and freestyle swimmer. And he caught my attention. You'll see up here just some pictures of him. Uh, he was in London 2012, and he was in Rio. And I wanted to just share with you a little bit of his story, and some of you may know it. But it, it really illustrates for me um, something of what we're, we're looking at today, which is love. The Independent in uh, 2006, just in the run-up to uh, the 2008 Olympics, told his story. And I wanted to share it with you. Here is what The Independent said about his story. Ahmad Hassim and his younger brother, Tarek, gathered their swimming gear quickly. They were anxious not to disturb their parents' weekend lying. On a quiet Sunday morning, it didn't take long to clear their Cape Town suburb and reach Musenberg Beach. Is that right, Musenberg? Anyone been to Musenberg Beach? The long stretch of sand that sprawls east of the Cape. They were excited. Life-saving exams were leaving, and a busy day of rehearsals lay ahead. It was the 13th of August, 20, th 2006, and their lives were about to change forever. Down on the beach, they met the others, Nick, Kim, and Keisha, and they squabbled good-naturedly over who would be the patients and who would be the lifesavers, who would be dropped and where in the water. Nick didn't want to go any deeper than his knees. I jumped out, this is Hasim, and it was head height. My brother went deeper. Hasim's memory, five years later, was as clear as the waters of False Bay. Musenberg Beach slopes gently into the bay, and Hasim had spent his childhood exploring, playing, and swimming across its easy undulations. He knew it well. Shark sightings around the Cape are common. The sea is rich hunting ground, but only at certain times of year, and August is usually considered too cold. There is, after all, nothing between there and Antarctica. So when Hasim first caught sight of the advancing shadow, his initial thought was not one of alarm. Then the telltale fin first pierced the surface. Hasim's voice is soft. The shark was heading towards my brother. I screamed for the rubber duck, the life-saving boat, to get out to him. They didn't understand what I was shouting about. I was screaming, get Tarek, get Tarek, he's in danger. Then. I started splashing, trying to distract the shark, and the shadow changed direction. It was coming towards me, and then the fin disappeared below the surface. I knew that when sharks attack, they like to come from the bottom up. I could just touch the bottom, and I tried to make myself as big as possible. But the shark didn't attack. It bumped me, and its body rolled along mine. Then its tail whacked me. I was rocking, trying to keep my feet. I lost sight of the shark, but I could see my brother further out. He was screaming something at me. Then I saw it coming. Its mouth was open. I decided, no, I'm going to fight. And I hit the shark with my fists. A shark's body is coarse, and it was like hitting sandpaper, a tank wrapped in sandpaper. 
Soon I had no skin on my knuckles, but I had one good leg left, and I was trying to kick the shark. Then it shook me again, twice, so hard that on the second one, there was a cracking sound. Even under the water, I heard it, and my leg broke off. Later that day, Hassim was operated on, and up until the very moment that the anesthetic took hold, he had no real idea what he'd been through. He describes how there were moments when he felt as though he was looking down on himself, playing a part in a movie. Reality arrived the following day. He woke in intensive care. The first thing I saw was my brother crying. That hit me hard. He saw I was awake and said, thank you. I said, what for? He said, thank you for saving my life. Those lovely words of Akhmat's brother, thank you. What for? For saving my life. And in John 15, Jesus says this, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And so we hear from Jesus, a mark of a disciple, a key mark of a disciple, is love. So we're in John 15, and the context of John 15 is, is really interesting. And just to give you a little whistle-stop tour of the chapters up until John 15, Jesus has healed Lazarus. The disciples and Jesus have had a private supper. Mary has just anointed Jesus' feet with a very expensive ointment. Jesus has ridden into Jerusalem on a donkey, and palm trees have been laid before him. And the people have shouted, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus knows at this time that his time is coming when he will have to leave his disciples and he wants to make the most of the time that he has with them. So he begins to wash the disciples' feet, to wipe them with a towel, and he begins to comfort them and instruct them so that when he's no longer physically with them, they know uh, they're well prepared and they know how to operate and how to, wa how to walk uh, in the Christian life, following in his steps. So John 13, you have Jesus saying, if I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. So serve one another. That's John 13. And then he says again in John 13, a new commandment I give to you, love one another as I have loved you. And then he says in chapter 14, he says, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. It's a rich conversation. He knows what's going to happen, and he's just giving them the instructions that will help them. That verse in chapter 14, let not your heart be troubled. Growing up, I used to, as a teenager particularly, I used to worry in the evenings, and I would often go into my parents' bedroom very late at night, and I would explain the worries that I had, and my dad would give me this particular verse. Let not your heart be troubled. And if anyone is worried today, is anxious about tomorrow, is worried about friends or family who are suffering, meditate on that verse. Then Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. So the conversation is rich up until this point. 
And then you get John 15, 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Continue in my love. So there's just a constant theme here. And it reminds me, John's gospel at this point reminds me of really when I was a teenager. I was a disorganized teenager. And before I went somewhere or I traveled somewhere, my dad would always say to me, have you packed? Have you got your toothbrush? Have you got your money? Have you got your ticket? And then as we got to the airport, he'd say the same thing again. Have you got your toothbrush? Have you got your money? Have you got your ticket? And it's a bit like what's that's, that's what's going on here with John. John 13, Jesus says, serve one another. Have you packed? Love one another. Have you got your passport? Don't worry. Believe in me. Have you got your money? Continue in my love. Have you got your toothbrush? And then John 15, love one another. And this is possibly one of the greatest verses in the New Testament because in one breath, it actually summarizes, I think, the message of the Christian faith. It's the lift script, if you like. So if you're caught in a lift and someone says, what is it about Jesus? What is it about the Christian faith that makes you believe it? This is it. Christ showed the greatest love that a, a man could show in the sacrifice that he made on the cross for us. And being the God of the universe, he called us his friends. Now, sticking with my Paralympic theme, um, but on a, a much smaller scale, I love the story of the Polish discus thrower. He's called Piotr Malakowski. I'm not a big Polish. I, I find it really hard to pronounce Polish names. But he's called Piotr Malakowski. Um, and this is a picture of him. There he is. Um, throwing his discus and with his medal around his neck. And I want to read you a little article that came out literally at the end of August this year, uh, which talks about Pietro and uh, uh, what he did with his Olympic silver medal. So here it is, the 26th of August, 2016. Here's the headline, Rio 2016. Polish discus thrower sells Olympic silver medal to raise money for three-year-old with cancer. If you help me, my silver can be more precious than gold, said Malakowski in his original appeal via Facebook. Polish discus thrower Malakowski has donated his Olympic silver medal to raise funds for a three-year-old boy with a very rare form of cancer. He threw 67.55 meters to claim silver, finishing 82 centimeters adrift of the German Christoph Harting. It was the 33-year-old's second Olympic medal with a silver taken in 2008 at Beijing. His donation enabled compatriot Oleg Szymanski, who has retinoblastoma, an eye cancer affecting young children, to fly to New York to undergo treatment. My silver medal, he said, is worth a lot more than a week ago. It is worth the health of little Oleg. We were able to show that together we can do wonders. It is our great shared success. Winning an Olympic medal is one of an athlete's life dreams. Malakowski uh, made his original appeal via Facebook and he remarked this, in Rio I fought for gold. Today I appeal to everyone. Let's fight together about something even more precious, the health of this fantastic little boy. And you can see in the next slides just some pictures of the little boy uh, who he helped. There he is with his eye patch and there he is 
with holding on to the medal that enabled him to uh, have the life-saving treatment in New York. What a story. Where there is great love, there is always great sacrifice. Ahmad Hassim showed extraordinary love to his brother by diverting the shark to himself, away from his brother, and thereby losing his leg. Malakowski showed extraordinary love for a three-year-old boy that he didn't know by giving up and selling to another Polish family his hard-won silver medal so that the money could be raised for the little boy's operation. And in our families, in our marriages, in our with our children, with our friends, with our collectives, where there is great love, there will always be great sacrifice. In Jesus' case, it cost him his life. It may not mean uh, physically laying down our lives for us, but it will mean like laying down our lives in some way. And if we're to take the commandment of Jesus seriously, we must learn that great love does mean service. And many of us day-to-day -day do that. I mean, I recognize that. Everybody day-to-day uh, -day will have show some element of that. So there are mothers who I know daily sacrifice for their children every day. There are fathers who, and I see them every day, who are sacrificing little bits of themselves each day on the commute in service to their families. There are people who sacrifice for loved ones who are sick and they give of themselves daily to care for them. And there are people, and we'll celebrate, uh, uh, remember on Poppy Day, there are people who sacrifice daily their own lives for their country. There's a lovely story of the Prince of Wales in 1917, towards the end of the First World War. Uh, he was visiting a military hospital in Hanwell in Middlesex. And the matron took him through the wards one by one. And at the end of the tour, the prince turned to her and he said, I was told that there were nine wards in the hospital and you've only taken me to eight of those wards. And the matron looked at him and said, that's very observant of you, sir. There is in fact one more room, but the one soldier in the room is so hideously wounded that we wanted to spare you. The prince turned to her and he insisted on seeing this one soldier. And when he got into the soldier's room, most of his face, the, the, the soldier's face, had been blown off. And the prince entered the room, and he was silent for a few minutes. And then, apparently, he knelt by the man's bed, and he whispered, Thank you. Thank you for being wounded for me. And when we kneel before another man who died on a cross, and we recognize his sacrifice. And we whisper, thank you. Thank you for being wounded for me. That is a decisive moment. Because God does two things for us. Immediately, he forgives us. The prophet Jeremiah puts it this way. He remembers our sins no more. Because one day we'll see Jesus face to face. And overwhelmed by his holiness... If you're anything like me, we'll probably go up to him and we'll stutter. And we'll say, well, Lord, I'm sorry that I, I, I did this. I'm sorry that, that in 2016 I did that. 
But heaven's forgiveness is so perfect that the Lord will look at us, I like to think, and he'll smile and he'll say, did you? I don't remember. That is grace. That is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the first thing. He forgives us. Secondly, when we whisper those things, thank you for being wounded for me, he changes our relationship with him forever. He justifies us. And so being forgiven and justified, we find ourselves in a place where we can show love to one another. Sacrificial love. I enjoy reading Anthony Hilton, who's the Evening Standard correspondent. And on the 6th of October, 2016, he wrote this. Uh, when he passed through London last month, Robert Schiller, one of the most distinguished of the current generation of American economists, said that we can only understand the current great mood swings in global politics and economics if we understand that we live in a post-factual world. It's no longer what is true that matters and drives opinion. It is what people believe. Success goes to those with the best narrative, those who spin the best story, not those with the knowledge and the best command of the facts. And interestingly, without getting into the politics of it, Schiller says this is behind the rise of Donald Trump in the United States. But it made me think, what would happen if people throughout the world took the words of Jesus seriously? What would happen if they fulfilled his command to the letter, love one another as I have loved you? Greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. What would have happened if the country before Brexit had meditated on those words in advance of voting in the Brexit referendum? I don't give an answer either way. I just wonder. What would happen if in the American election, with what is going on now, the American people took the words of Jesus seriously in this respect? Because not only are the words of Jesus true, for he had the best command of the facts of any human being that's ever lived, but he also has the best narrative, a narrative of love and hope for all people. And it's up to us, the church, to set out the facts, explain the narrative, and what better way than to point to Jesus, who himself showed us the greatest love, that we might in turn give service to others. So we've got Pete Portal showing love in the, in the drug-addicted gangland neighborhood of Menenberg in South Africa. You've got Ahmad Hassin showing huge love for his brother and changing the course of the rest of his life in doing so. You've got Malakowski who trained for years and years to get his silver medal at Rio and yet he saw the opportunity to sacrifice that medal for a three-year-old boy who he didn't know to get him to New York to have life-saving treatment. Each of them laid down something precious. They sacrificed out of great love. One of my heroes is a guy called Algie Stanley Smith. Many people have never heard of him before. He was a missionary in Uganda in the 1900s. And he showed enormous love and sacrifice throughout his whole life in the area of East Africa around Rwanda and the southwest of Uganda. 
He was educated uh, not far from here in Winchester. And then he went to Cambridge where he read medicine. And he graduated uh, in 1910 and he qualified as a doctor in London. And then he was called as a missionary and he felt himself called and he committed himself to bringing the gospel to the people of Rwanda and southwestern Uganda. His mission was to bring Jesus and medical care. Now, amazingly, 30 or 40 years previously, another Cambridge graduate had translated the scriptures. He was a brilliant linguist. Had translated the scriptures from, uh, uh, from English into um, Luganda, which is the, the one of the local big local tribal languages around Kampala. And so Algy's mission almost had been teed up some 30 years previously by a guy who learned how to speak Luganda and translated the scriptures. And what Algy did was he traveled around with, this, with CMS, which is the Christian Missionary Society, throughout Rwanda and Uganda, and he preached the gospel and he ministered to the sick. And in 1936, together with a lovely man called Joe Church, he led a revival in Rwanda and southwestern Uganda. The Holy Spirit moved in power. The guys prayed, their wives prayed, their friends prayed, and there was a, a revival in that part of Africa. And as a result of that revival, churches and hospitals were set up. And in 1994, as a young graduate myself, having just left Cambridge University, I, find my, I found myself walking past the busy hospital which Algie Stanley Smith had set up. And I found myself preaching in the pulpit of the church that he had built brick by brick in the town of Umbarara in southwestern Uganda. And I looked out onto a sea of faces, of families who generations on had been impacted by Algie Stanley Smith's sacrifices and his ministry. Algie moved back to England in the 1970s as a very old man. He was by then, he was in his, in his 80s, uh, and Uganda was in a very tough place at that time because you had Idi Amin and all sorts of horrific troubles. But he had devoted his life with his wife to the people's of Rwanda and Uganda. And even in 1994, when I was there as a young graduate, almost 20 years after he'd left, his legacy lived on. And I spoke to people who said, we loved Algie Stanley Smith because he gave up his life. He sacrificed for us. And through him, we built our hospital, we built our church, and we set up our schools. So what can we do as a community in Guildford today, this week, this year, in response to that great command, love one another? What will generations to come in Guildford and around the world say about the legacy of Emmaus Road Church? What will they say about the ministry of the Slins in Ibiza, backed fully by Emmaus Road, which from January 2017 will start to show more love and sacrifice to the young and the old on the island of Ibiza? Will they say that the love shown in the era of 2016 marked us out clearly as disciples of Jesus? Will they speak of the transformation of Guildford, of Farnham, of beyond, of families impacted through family outreach, through Alpha? So finally, how do, how do we apply all of this? Well, perhaps 
There are some of us here today, and I preach as much to myself as, as to anyone. And we've never fully grasped the extent of the love of Christ. We've never fully understood the extent of the sacrifice. We've never really understood how high, how deep, and how wide is the love of Christ. Perhaps today is the day when you kneel down and in the quietness of your own heart, just between you and God, you whisper, thank you. Thank you for being wounded for me. Perhaps you, you've heard Jesus' commandment, and, and like me, you struggle with the notion of sacrifice. What does that mean for me? What does that look like? Well, ask Jesus today to reveal what that might look like for you. Finally, perhaps you long to be of greater service to the Lord Jesus. And like Algie Stanley Smith, you long to say, Lord, at the end of my life, I want to have devoted myself to the service that you have for me. And you're looking for ways in which you can serve more broadly. Perhaps today is the day when you resolve to listen to what that might mean. Maybe it's family outreach and getting involved. Maybe it's another ministry. Many waters cannot quench love. Neither can the floods drown it. Greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. As we reflect on this, I leave you with a, a little song from Chris Tomlin, which I think captures something of that greater love that we've been talking about this morning. So we'll just listen very quietly and then perhaps go into a time of ministry for those that would like prayer. Thank you. His word endures from beginning to end. To God be the glory. To God.